Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm delighted to welcome two authors today. The first is Dr. Brian Lloyd, who is a Ph.D. student, and Dr. Jennifer Stevens-Lasley, who is a professor both with the Department of Physical Therapy and the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The topic of our podcast today is an article they recently published in PTJ entitled Influence of Hip Abductor Strength on Functional Outcomes Before and After Total Knee Arthroplasty a post-hoc analysis of a randomized control trial. I thought I would begin, Jennifer and Brian, if I could, by just quickly summarizing the article, and then we'll go into a series of questions that we can discuss. That sounds great. Sounds great. The purpose of the study was to quantify changes in hip abductor strength from pre-total knee arthroplasty through three months post-surgery and to characterize the relationship between the hip abductor strength changes and physical performance. Their design was a post-hoc analysis of a randomized controlled trial that involved 162 participants. They collected data preoperatively as well as at one and three months following surgery and the Physical performance measures included the timed up-and-go test, their climbing test, six-minute walk test, as well as walking speed. There were several interesting findings in this article. The first is they reported that hip abductor strength was significantly lower in the surgical limb pre-surgery and one month post-surgery and three months post-surgery compared to the non-surgical limb. They also noted that hip abductor strength declined from pre-surgery to one month to uh, at about 18%, but not at the three-month time point. Hip abductor strength independently contributed to performance-based outcomes pre-surgery. However, this contribution was not observed post-surgery. And then finally, the surgical limb hip abductor strength was impaired prior to surgery, and it worsened following surgery. Furthermore, hip abductor strength did contribute to performance-based outcomes. So congratulations to both of you on the article. Let me start with my first question. Why did you think, going into this analysis, that hip abductor strength loss would contribute to functional performance deficits after surgery, independent of those associated with knee extensor strength loss? You know, evidence has really shown that hip abductor strength contributes significantly to hip and knee stability during movement both of which are likely to influence functional performance. And we know that a decrease in hip abductor moments and observed gait deviations resulting from muscle strength in this case will result in a Trendelenburg compensated gait pattern or slower gait speeds. And we know this most after hip replacement. You know, the data are stronger in that population because there's much more attention paid to the hip abductors following total hip arthroplasty. But very few people have focused on the role of the hip abductors after knee replacement surgery, especially in a longitudinal manner, to kind of look over time what changes before and after surgery. But the ability to stabilize that pelvis really is important for better gait mechanics and therefore better functional performance. 
makes good sense. And I thought it was a great use of the data collected for a different primary purpose. I was struck in your trial, you chose a dose 26 physical therapy outpatient visits over a 12-week period. Could you talk a little bit about why this was the number of visits and how the visits were spaced out over the 26 weeks or the 12 weeks? Sure. Most of the visits were fairly evenly distributed throughout the 12 weeks. For the first five weeks, we targeted three visits a week, and then for the remaining weeks, it was about two visits a week for a total of 26 visits. So we front-loaded a little bit, but generally patients got two to three visits a week throughout the period of that 12-week intervention. We chose 26 visits, certainly a little bit on the higher end, but not out of the realm of typical ranges that would be expected after knee replacement surgery, largely because previous studies had not shown that physical function, both in terms of functional performance and muscle strength, were restored to much more than preoperative levels of strength and function. And that's important because the preoperative levels in most patients that have been assessed in joint replacement, specifically knee replacement, are usually about 20% less than what you would expect for healthy individuals that have never experienced knee osteoarthritis. And so returning patients back to their preoperative level of strength and function doesn't seem like the bar that we should set for really optimizing performance. And for that reason, we erred on the side of of a few extra visits in order to try and get to a better than preoperative level of physical function. It was interesting to me that in your analysis you chose to focus on outcomes one and three months post-knee replacement. Why those two time periods? I think that kind of ties back into how we saw this to be, what were those time points clinically relevant, and what did they represent with our patient? So when we think about the one-month time point following surgery, that's a point when patients are really still kind of showing some pretty significant deficits, but they may be beginning to regain function. It's not that really early time point when, you know, they're really struggling to do even simple tasks. They're, they're getting some of that back, but they're still showing some difficulty with that stuff. Furthermore, this is a time when most patients will be seen in physical therapy, we believe. And so we wanted to be able to provide evidence to our therapist to say, hey, this is kind of what we expect at that one-month time point. And then when we look at three months, we think of this as more of a time when patients are really starting to show true recovery. They're moving out of that physical therapy time point, and they're beginning to maybe show some plateau in their recovery. So it allowed us to look at a really low functional time point and a time point that was more representative of a recovery time point, if you will. Makes good sense. Did you consider six months? Because it strikes me by six months you might be seeing maximum recovery. Yes, and for the purposes of of this analysis, we focused on that early time frame just to reduce the number of comparisons and kind of the really kind of target that that early acute period or, or, you know, the first three months. We do have data on six months and a year. Generally, performance in terms of function starts to plateau around six months, certainly by a year. And the three-month data are not appreciably different than the six-month data in many cases. These patients, because they received additional physical therapy throughout a slightly longer period of time than some patients might receive, they had a better outcome overall at that three-month time point than we might have seen historically in our control patients in in other studies. That's interesting. I was also struck that, and I understand, you excluded a number of conditions, people who had cardiovascular, neurologic, and other diseases, that limited 
cognitive function were excluded from your sample. Were you concerned that this uh, seriously might uh, restrict your generalizability of the study? Great question. We're always concerned about that. Um, the nature of RCTs, as you well know, is that the sample size limitations because of the investment of resources to carefully control for quality of the intervention and the efficacy of the intervention require us to sometimes select a more homogeneous population of patients so that we can actually see the effects that we're hoping to see. But the downside of that, of course, is that we reduce the generalizability of our findings. However, we've been looking at this question. It's something of great interest to us because uh, we've been looking at some data collected in real-world clinical settings and comparing it to RCT data in patients with knee replacement surgery. And what we've seen is actually a little bit surprising. While some of these findings are attenuated a little bit by these inclusion-exclusion criteria, sometimes the rate of recovery is a little bit slower there's not as big of an effect as we would have anticipated. And so in many cases, we're really not seeing that things like cardiovascular, neurological, or other diseases have a substantial influence on the outcomes, in this case, of this RCT. I think that's an area that needs a lot of further evaluation and assessment because I don't think we know how much our inclusion-exclusion criteria are truly impacting the generalizability of results. With all the interest that there is currently around pragmatic trials, you can see your findings would suggest in future work you might be able to relax some of those criteria to broaden the kinds of samples that you're able to work with. Absolutely, and that's something of great interest. And as we refine the protocols and the strategies that we use to educate therapists on the intervention aspects of what we're doing, I think we're able to more broadly disseminate some of this type of work in a more pragmatic nature, more real-world applications without losing the intended effect of the intervention. I'll look forward to seeing that work. Uh, as someone who's interested in uh, functional measurement, I was curious how you handled the use of walking aids at each time point. Did you allow people to use whatever aids, and how did you incorporate that in your measures? So I think you really come to something that we battle with a lot with this type of data and this, and when we're working with these patients, is that assistive devices are needed, especially early after surgery, for a lot of people. The way we've kind of gone about it is we allow patients to use an assistive device. We try to encourage them to use the least restrictive device that they can, that being said, many of them still require a cane or, or maybe a two-wheel walker to perform these tests, walking tests, timed up and go. But unfortunately, because there's a lot of variability in what they are using, if they're using a single-point cane, if they're using a, a two-wheel walker, a, a more traditional walker, it becomes difficult to really plug all of those different variables into your analysis. So, you know, you, you start looking at having to have several, several covariates to try to control for that. So it makes it difficult to look at, and we don't maybe have the best answer for that, but because we want to try to still capture the, the most realistic data we can with these patients, we, we do allow them to use assistive devices as needed. Yeah, I can understand it, and, and I appreciate the, the challenge that it presents to you. Yeah, it's, it's ongoing, and, and you just can't take a cane away from somebody if they really need it and expect them to, to do your six-minute walk test. And so it's a really fine line of what's appropriate, what's not, and, and what can we gain from looking at that still. I was interested in looking at some of your findings. When you did the between-limb comparisons, 
of the operative and then the non-operative side using normalized uh, hip abductor strength, you found that the surgical limb was significantly weaker at baseline one and still at three months post-surgery. Were you surprised by the strength differences still at three months? That, that surprised me. I thought by three months they might be more similar. Yeah, you would think that, and I think that was certainly a finding that is very important to our clinical colleagues because we assume that patients are getting back to that full level of, you know, at least preoperative level of strength by that three-month time point when they're finishing therapy. But in many cases, they're not, and I think we've shown this with other muscle groups and certainly the quadriceps, that you really need additional follow-up or patients need to continue to engage their surgical leg in ways that continue to build functional strength over that three- to six-month period of time or even six- to 12-month periods of time. In many cases, what we see is that there's an asymmetry in movement that results after surgery or that actually was pre-existing before surgery but that persists after surgery. And this concept of disuse that really continues to make it difficult to build that strength. We see that even when pain is gone, that the asymmetries in movement persist in ways that may contribute to that long and very slow recovery of muscle strength. I'm curious, did you find it co-varied with how severe the involved side was pre-surgery? There are certainly studies that have shown that the involved side two to three years after surgery is a better predictor of functional performance because as time goes on, that involved side and the deterioration of that involved side affects functional performance more than, say, the surgical side that has been replaced. So, yes, I think we, we didn't specifically do that analysis with this population, but I think there's room to believe that that may be an important factor in the recovery. I will say that one of the reasons we didn't do that analysis is one of our inclusion criteria was limited involvement of the contralateral side, the non-surgical side, in terms of osteoarthritis at baseline. And we included that inclusion criteria because, or exclusion criteria, depending on how you look at it, simply because we needed to follow patients over a one-year period of time, and we really wanted to assess how the intervention targeted at the surgical limb was going to affect performance of that limb without the confounder of the contralateral limb concurrently deteriorating. That makes sense. You know, one of the most interesting findings for me was when you looked at one in three months following surgery, the change in both abductor, tip abductor strength and knee extensor strength, as you had hypothesized, you found that they did make substantial contributions to function when controlling three other covariates. But what struck me was how small the contribution was in the order of 2 to 5%. Did that surprise you or was that what you had anticipated? No, it definitely surprised us because we expected a much larger contribution. I think there's two possible explanations for that. One is post-operatively, there are so many factors that influence someone's recovery that were not included in this secondary analysis. And those types of things are, you know, pain, complications from surgery. There are quite a, a range of other things that may truly have a substantial impact on functional performance. And Because of that, you know, muscle strength is important but may not be the only driver of postoperative performance. The other factor that may have played a larger role is that the heterogeneity of the sample after surgery is obviously much greater than before surgery. 
and you get a much greater spread of people who are, you know, responding really well in terms of muscle strength and people who aren't. And that may have influenced the analyses as well, such that we didn't see as large of an effect as we might have anticipated. A factor that we may not have considered that is coming to light in additional analyses of this particular clinical trial is quadriceps activation. And it turns out that patients who have low activation early after surgery, regardless of what kind of intervention they get, whether they get a higher intensity intervention, a lower intensity intervention, the patients that have more deficits in quadriceps activation do more poorly across time than patients who have better activation. And there's something that's intuitive about this. You know, obviously, if you can activate your quadriceps muscle, you're going to, earlier after surgery, you're going to perform better. But to be able to see the split and really truly the distribution of performance on the basis of this one variable alone is, it's, I think, something that needs to continue to be highlighted in assessments of patients and then subsequent interventions that may influence these postoperative findings in terms of functional performance. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, but I don't think this is appreciated universally when people are designing rehab programs post-knee replacement. I was also struck by one of your implications that given the finding of the relatively small but uh, not terribly different impact of uh, hip abductor strength deficits as well as knee extension deficits that you thought the, the focus on knee extensor strengthening should remain the focal point of post-operative rehab. Why wouldn't you, you draw the conclusion that you probably should be focusing on both? I think you're absolutely right. There's an important point of emphasis to focus on both. The magnitude of the deficit in the knee extensors was about 36%, and in the hip abductors was about 18%. But the magnitude alone, I mean, the purpose of the study was to look at how does the magnitude of the deficit influence functional performance. So the magnitude alone shouldn't drive decisions about priorities for treatment interventions if function is the ultimate target. So I think focusing on both is very appropriate. And again, the hip abductors, I think, are sometimes overlooked in terms of treatment points of emphasis. And so that was one thing that we wanted to highlight was the value of still including hip abductor strengthening in, in postoperative programs. One of the things that I think is also important is that hip abductor strength may not need to be remediated or addressed quite as early after surgery as the knee extensor strength. And I think it becomes really apparent to therapists who are working with this population that if you can't physically get out of a chair or perform some of the basic activities of daily living, that degree of deficit drives the need to have a greater emphasis on that early intervention on quadriceps strength. And that was why we structured our recommendations because it's a little bit the timing, but if you don't have that quadriceps strength, it's such a huge component in being able to do those daily tasks. And while the hip abductors are essential to maintaining pelvic stability and helping control and movement more dynamic tasks, they may not be as critical for those early stage activities that people really truly just don't have the functional strength to be able to do. I think your point about the timing of delivering different strengthening emphases is really an important one that comes out of your work. I agree. My final question, I want to talk a little bit about your primary trial which, of course, wasn't the focus of, of this article, but it, it struck me, given the findings of uh, the work you reported in this article, in your parent trial, the experimental group received high-intensity strengthening 
And it focused on knee extensor, flexor, as well as hip strengthening, plus high-intensity stair, gait, and balance training, so kind of a functional component as well. And the control comparison received the same number of visits, but it was more a traditional standard of care, focusing on range and stretching and low-load strengthening, basic mobility and pain management. And if, if I recall correctly, you did not see a significant difference between the two experimental groups. Correct. Might the findings from the secondary analysis shed some light on the findings from your primary trial? I think that there were a couple of factors that may have influenced the results of the, the parent trial that may certainly be influencing the, these results that we're discussing in terms of the, this secondary analysis. And we have looked at the data from the parent trial and compared it to our historical control data that we have very similar kind of inclusion-exclusion criteria with usual care paradigms. And one of the things we've seen is that these patients, regardless of which group they were in, did much better than our historical controls. And so the deficits that are being reported in this particular manuscript may be less than those that might be seen in the population as a whole. They, they may underestimate the deficits, you know, across the country in, in patients with knee replacement surgery. So we also, I think the other factor that we have realized in the parent trial is that our control group really was more active than we had anticipated. It's really a challenge, and this kind of speaks to your comment about pragmatic trials and the need for more pragmatic trials. It's a real challenge to hold people back who are inherently very motivated to participate in a study and tell them, don't do A, B, or C. They look online, they read the literature as they are able to interpret what they see online, and they really want to get back to a higher level of function. And so, you know, again, many of our control patients with our assessments in terms of physical activity were at a much higher level of physical activity than, than we anticipated. And then I guess the last piece that I think is relevant to this analysis that we talked about earlier is that, you know, this activation deficit may be a factor that really truly trumps a lot of other, you know, variables in determining success and failure after surgery and that we really need to continue to understand the role of these activation deficits in influencing quadricep strength or hip abductor strength or functional mobility as a whole and outcomes related to better performers and poor performers in terms of activation. Well, I want to thank both of you for taking the time to do this podcast today, for publishing your work in TTJ, and I look forward to seeing the continued progress of your work in this important clinical area. Thank you both. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to share some insights regarding the work that we've done. We really appreciate your thoughtful questions. Yeah, thank you. I'm very pleased to have it move forward and get out in publication in PTJ, and thanks a lot for having us on the podcast.